0: I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. There are certain people in my life that I just feel honored to be associated with, just lucky to know. And Michael Hyatt is certainly one of those people i happened to speak at an event on a cruise ship and he was trapped there with me um, for six days and he couldn't get away and i managed to get to know him and build a little relationship that was several years ago and i certainly consider him a mentor if you if you haven't heard of him uh, i don't really know how you could be in the personal branding space and not know who he is but he's the former ceo of thomas nelson Um, he's the new york times wall street journal usa today best-selling author of several books uh one of which was platform which made a huge personal impact in me in my direction um, he's written several others living forward your best year ever free to focus most recently um, he is both a tremendous personal brand but also a real leader you know he scaled a, a company 250 million dollar publishing company with 700 employees as thomas nelson uh the michael hyatt team like their company now is one of the ink five on the e5000 list so he's a real leader real ceo real businessman also real family man he's been married for over 40 years to gail who's she's awesome so it's understandable um he's got five amazing daughters nine grandchildren and uh he volunteered to come help me out as a personal favor it's not easy to get his time these days he's so busy so michael Thank you for the honor of being here, my friend. Absolutely,
1: Rory. Thank you for those kind words. Amazing.
0: You know, if you say publishing, it's hard to create a list of people that would be more experienced in all different angles than you. And I think so many of the people watching, I mean, I think almost every one of our clients, like a book enters into the conversation at some point. Yep. And so my first question for you, I figured was an easy one. Can you just tell us the secret of writing a best-selling book?
1: (laughs) Well, take about 80% luck and, you know, have the right idea at the right time. No, seriously, I think part of it can certainly enhance your chances of writing a best-selling book, but I think the most important thing on writing a best-selling book or creating a, a platform or a brand that has significance in the world is having something important and helpful to say. So I think you know if if Zig Ziglar said you know if you help enough people then you can get what you want and I think it's the same thing with writing a book. Just write the most helpful, useful book you can. Be authentic. Be transparent. Be encouraging. And that's basically all I've I've tried to do. And I've tried to, you know, try try to find a topic that was hot, and something that I could, with integrity, speak out of my experience. But that's that's pretty much what I've done.
0: So talk to me a little bit about the you have the platform. Like that's a, a part of the factor here is you have like the integrity of the idea, but then you have the size of the author's platform. Which one matters more? Do they matter the same? Can you do it with, do you have to have both one, not the other? Like what's the balance there between platform and, and, you know, premise?
1: Yeah. The way I say it is that content is king, but platform is queen. And so it really takes both of those together. You know, if you want to create a kingdom and, and rule well. The reason I wrote the book Platform initially was because for years in the publishing business, I had been on the publishing side of turning away authors with great ideas, sometimes even fully written manuscripts that were fantastic. But because they didn't have a platform, there was very little for us as a publishing company to leverage. But when an author came to us with a great idea, great content, and they had some platform, didn't have to be vast, But they had to at least have proof of concept that there was an audience that was buying into their content, into their frameworks, into whatever it is that they were selling. That was something we could leverage and kind of take to the next level. So I I think they're equally important.
0: So do you think that traditional publishing, like, like, you know, that's kind of the question today is years ago, it was like traditional publishing was the way to go and then self publishing and I feel like it kind of teeters back and forth. A lot of our clients ask this question, how do I know if I should use a traditional publisher? You know, do I really need one? Right. Should I self-publish? Like, what's your take on that in the like current day era?
1: Well, my opinion has vacillated over the years. So in the initial, I mean, I, I was in the publishing business for 35 years. So initially there was only traditional publishing. Then there was self-publishing or we, you know, called it in those days vanity publishing, which was kind of pejorative, but that's how we looked at it. And it wasn't very well respected because the books looked terrible. They usually weren't well written or well edited. And you could just tell a self-published book. But all that changed, started changing about 10 years ago. And so self-publishing got more sophisticated. There were these hybrid publishers that would help you do some of it. And so now you've got all kinds of options out there. But I've kind of come full circle. So here's my theory right now. If you want to write a book just to credential yourself, And there's no better way to credential yourself or to get authority in a space than to write a book. I personally think it's more important than a PhD. Mm -hmm. It's more important than tons of experience. If you have a published book, that in this culture, that kind of says you've arrived and you're an expert in your category. So if if that's all you're trying to do, then I think self-publishing is fine. It becomes kind of a glorified, very nice business card. That can pave the way as you go out and try to do other things, whether it's booking speaking or writing additional books or whatever. If, on the other hand, you want to take a run at the bestseller list, and if publishing books is not your primary thing, like let's just say that you're primarily a speaker or you're a consultant or you've got some other gig that's the main thing, your main revenue model, then I would absolutely use a traditional publisher because self publishing is a ton. And I made a ton of work. Now, Michael Hyatt & Company today, we do one traditional publishing published book every year. So I write one book every year, but then we also do a couple of self-published books just for our tribe. And I can tell you from looking on the inside in, having to do it all myself, it's a ton of work. And if I didn't have the platform I do that I could sell to, man, it'd be, I don't know that it'd be worth it. Mm,
0: That's super insightful. So on the business model question, so that's a good one. That's another thing I wanted to ask you about is of all my friends and colleagues, I think you've tried more business models than anyone. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, you've done live events, you've done speaking, you've done consulting, you've done coaching, you've had memberships, you've done video courses, you've done affiliate launches, like you've done online summits like this. Is there a favorite business model that you have or, you know, I, I think a lot of people kind of, it's like, oh, masterminds is the thing or no, a membership is the thing or really it should be, you know, video courses are where it's at. Can you just give us like maybe some of the highs and lows of each of those and maybe like the ones you like or, or maybe what were some of the most surprising things you learned from the various different business models that you've, you've tried?
1: Well, you know, I never really thought of myself as having tried so many, but, but you're right. And, and frankly, a lot of them haven't worked. So I've done, I've done stuff that's worked and stuff that hasn't worked, but one of the things I've always tried to cultivate is sort of an experimental mindset. Mm -hmm. So whenever I approach anything, a business launch or whatever, I approach it as an experiment. You know, hey, let's just try it and see if it works. Like one of my colossal failures is that after we launched best year ever, five days to your best year ever, that was a huge success. We had like 35,000 people go through that course over five years and it was a big revenue engine for our company. So, we said, hey, let's create best year ever for leaders because we thought leaders are going to eat this up. So, I literally recorded all the videos and they were killer. You know, I, I was even impressed with them. I thought, these are amazing. We <laughs> built a beautiful sales page and so we got, you know, all the emails written, everything. We launched it and it was crickets. We literally, in the first twenty hour, 24 hours after the launch, we had one order. Wow. I'm like pulling my hair out. I said, I said to my team, what's wrong with the tech? This has got to be a technological failure. There's no way that we could just get one order. We could have come up with that if we had a strategy. And sure enough, that was it. Nobody wanted the course. So we try stuff and the stuff that works you hear about, the stuff that doesn't work, you know, we don't typically publicize that. <laughs> so you don't hear about that. But I, I would say that one business model that I've had that I've believed in for a long time is multiple streams of income. You know, whatever horse you're on right now, eventually probably is going to you're going to reach a, a saturation point or you're going to it's you're going to get all the low-hanging fruit and then it's going to get more expensive and more difficult. And so we've just tried to be in a lot of different things kind of all in the same vertical space now in the goal setting and productivity space. But part of the reason, I'm kind of rambling here so stop me, but one of the things we've we've realized is that kind of when the market's zigging, we want to zag. So we got into online courses, I think, pretty early. We certainly weren't the first, but we were among the first people that got into online courses. And that was huge. And it was ginormous margins. Well, then all of a sudden, people started doing courses on courses, you know, how to create courses. And then everybody, their brother created online courses. And the market was very dense, very saturated. So, we said, we think that people are desperate for live experiences that even though they've got all this virtual capability, people want to be face-to-face and have real human encounters. So, we started our live events and that went crazy. Then we created our paper planners, the full focus planner. And that thing has been
0: a- I forgot about that one. I didn't mention (laughs) there was that one. And then also you had, you know, the book, like the box, you were shipping boxes for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So so we have these. Yeah. So the, so the planner business is actually our biggest business. That's like, you know, almost an eight figure business now all by itself. And the cool thing about that is it doesn't really depend so much on my brand. So it's, it's kind of got some autonomy and independence, but again, you know, everybody was saying, in fact, people still say to me on Facebook, they say, Hey, we got digital task management. We got digital calendars. Why do we need a paper planner? Well, as it turns out, People are very distracted in the digital environment. The thing the paper planner does is give them focus. So again, just kind of multiple streams of income and how can we best serve our audience? What does our audience need and how can we best serve them?
0: Yeah, I love that experimental approach. And, and uh, I mean, you, just, you certainly have to be like willing to, willing to, you know, lose some money here and there in the spirit of like learning it out, lose some hours. I'll
1: tell you another thing too, you have to be willing to kill stuff when it needs to die. I mean, mm-hmm. in my view, everything has a season, but I, I'll tell you a funny story. So we had all these brands, you know, Best you Ever, Free to Focus, Full Focus Planner, Leaderbox, all this stuff. So last December, we were all sitting in a strategic planning meeting, and we brought in an outside consultant. And so he asked us this question that ultimately rocked our world. He said, could you explain to me the customer journey? Where do people start with you? And then what's the first step? Where do they go from there? And how do they go all the way through your, you know, your product suite? And we kind of all looked at each other and we said, we don't know. We don't have a clue. You know, here's some ways you could get into it, but we, were, we don't really know. We went through an unbelievable 24-hour period where we, where we killed or sunsetted best year ever and free to focus and said, they're too confusing. And so we mapped out a customer journey, but we had to be willing to, it's, it's kind of like cleaning your closet you know, if you want new clothes, sometimes the first thing you have to do is get rid of the old clothes. And yeah. so we had to clear out the old to make room for the new. And that I think as a business owner, a lot of times that takes courage because those were represented multimillion dollar businesses. But we also realized that we couldn't go to the next level unless we were real willing to kind of retire those to make room for the new things.
0: Yeah. That's like killing the sacred cows kind of a thing. Yeah. That's not easy, it's especially like you have so much invested into those you know, just to just kind of go, okay, we're done with that. We're going to move on. Like not an easy decision, I I can imagine.
1: It's not. And it's, I think one of the values of having a team is, you know, to have other smart people in the room and people with wisdom that can kind of check and keep me from doing, frankly, as a business owner, something impulsive, but we can kind of check one another and and ask if that's the best course and kind of scenario, play it and and make sure it's going to work.
0: All right. So, I apologize for bouncing around uh, on all these different topics, although I'm not really sorry. But um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is paid traffic versus organic traffic. Yep, You have built a huge platform and your community is so loyal. How much, you know, is it like, should it be all organic? Is a real audience one that is built organic? You know, is it paid just like, hey, you got you to gotta pay the money to get in front of eyeballs? Like, what's the balance of paid versus organic?
1: If you had asked me about when uh, Platform came out in 2012, if you'd asked me that question, then I would say, I never pay for traffic. Everything I had up until that point was organic. I had built it from 2004 when I started to blog and I had about, a, you know, like 100,000 unique visitors at that time on my blog and I thought you know that's that's enough you know and I had a mailing list of about the same size of about 100,000 I thought that's enough and and frankly it would have been but in today's environment particularly when social media is really restricting the access that you get to for free I I don't think it could be done without paid having said that I think you've got to have a very very clear model of what you're buying when you're paying for traffic, because I ultimately want to get them to the same place that I'm going to get, uh, get, to get organic traffic to. And that is that I want it to be self-perpetuating ongoing traffic that I can retain because they get exposed to the content and then they're locked in because they enjoy the content and feel like it's helpful. So, you know, I was, I was telling you before we, we came on that last year we spent about a million two on Facebook ads. And believe me, we watch the return on investment like that. I wouldn't be spending that kind of money, you know, if I wasn't getting a huge return on that investment, but it's totally worth it. So you just got to be, you got to be smart about it.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like more and more, it's like, the it's not necessarily the person with the best content that wins, but it's the one with the most sophisticated systems of knowing what dollars they're spending, what audiences they're going after, what's the lifetime, you know, what are the conversions, the lifetime value of that customer. It's it's interesting. One of my favorite interview questions I used to ask people was what is something you've changed your mind on recently? And it seems like both this and the traditional self-publishing, it seems like you kind of have teetered a little bit. So that's it's interesting to see that perspective.
1: Yeah, I, I really believe in paid advertising now and just, you know, just to quickly kind of outline our strategy I'm happy to share it. Typically, we run ads for free opt-ins. You know, it's usually an assessment or an ebook or a summit like this. Assessments have been very, very good uh, for us because people seem to have unbelievable curiosity to find out more about themselves. It's their favorite topic, right? So we offer a lot of assessments. And in those ses- assessments, we typically try to convert them after the assessment to a webinar. And a webinar is when I can begin to have a relationship with somebody where they get to kind of sample the brew. So for an hour on my webinars, I typically give them good, solid content. And then I pivot, and it depends on the product. We're either pivoting, trying to close to a discovery call, like our high-end coaching programs, or we're actually trying to sell the product. So we've, we've done both of those very successfully. So that's, that's how we think of paid, ad, paid advertising. We want to we wanna kind of just slowly escalate it where people get more involved with us after they try that free thing and have a good experience.
0: Yeah, and what, what would you consider, you know, like on that kind of a thing, like on a webinar, you know, if it was like a free call, what kind of percentages would somebody roughly estimate to go, if I'm doing a good, if I have a great webinar and a good clear process for like inviting a free call, like 10%, 5%, 20%. Like,
1: yeah, I would say that for us, it usually runs 10% would be on the low side, you know, especially for a free call, but up to 35, sometimes 50%. But we usually offer something on that, you know, we call them a discovery call. But people are wise to that. You know, people don't want to just call to get sold. So there has to be the promise of something else. So typically for us, like I can tell you on our, on our high-end program, Business Accelerator, which is our coaching program, we do a discovery call there, but we, do, we invite them to take an assessment there. We don't, we don't usually use an assessment to get those people to the webinar, but we use something called the business health assessment. So we invite them to take the business health assessment, get on the discovery call, and we will identify for them the three top priorities that as a business they need to focus on if they want to scale as rapidly as possible. Gotcha.
0: Okay. And then, you know, if you're doing like a course, thousand, two thousand dollars, it's more like, you know, if you can get five, 10% out of it, then that's yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 So, so on that note, again, this is, this is like a bunch of pepper questions. Automated webinars versus live webinars. Is there dramatic difference always, sometimes one you prefer more than the other? I've done them both. I I have to say that live
1: webinars for us are always more effective. And, you know, the biggest challenge today, because there's been a proliferation of webinars too, is to get people to show up Hmm. because the replays don't convert like the live thing does. Even if it's an automated webinar, when they show up, they're much more likely to buy than if, you know, they're just not going to watch the replay. They have good intentions. I mean, I do it all the time myself. You know, I want to get somebody's information. I sign up, then I get busy and I never go watch it. Yeah, I, I say you ought to do both, but I, I I feel strongly about what I'm about to say. I think you've got to be honest. I don't think you have to, you know, trumpet the fact that it's an automated webinar that it's not live. But I think you got to be very careful with your language so that you don't misrepresent it as live. And I, I remember several years ago I stumbled upon some webinar software. I could mention the name, but I won't. But that basically simulates a live webinar, including feeding fake questions into the chat. And to me, that's just, it just lacks integrity. And even if people don't quite know what's going on, they know something's off.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, and and I agree 100%. Do you think that a live webinar is gonna convert twice as good as a, a recorded version of it? Or is it even less than that? You know,
1: I don't track that data in my role like I used to. But all I can say is that I know it, record, that it does better. But here's the thing. There's no reason why you can't do both. So do the live webinar and record it. You right. know, again, be careful with your language so that you're not implying that it's live so that when, it, when it's in the automated format, you know, you don't want to give the wrong impression. But yeah, I mean, that's what we do. And a lot of times what we'll do is that when we begin, like any kind of launch that we're going to do. We'll do live webinars for a week. And I will typically do five one day after another. Wow. And, but we will also, and this is a good dress rehearsal for me, we'll do the recorded one first. And the great thing about that is putting the recorded one in the can and having it almost perfect is then if there's a technical glitch in one of the live webinars, we've got that one that we can just shove in and run in its place. And that's happened to us before.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. Usually I hear the opposite, you know, like run it live several times and then, you know, take that. But that's cool. Plus you get to have the practice run through without like all the yeah. live jitters and stuff. Okay. Next one, email frequency. It, too much versus too little. How much is too much? How little is too little? Like, is it is it kind of like the people that want to hear from you are going to stay tuned and you, you know, you send them as much as you can? Like, do you have a, you have a thought on that? Has it changed over the years? Like, I'm very, very curious. Let me just say, I've
1: overdone it. You know, I've, I've mailed way too much. And of course, all the experts, and I'm not one, but all the experts will tell you that you can't mail too much. And the more you mail, the more people will buy. But I just, I think at some point, if you're not adding value, and I just you think you got to listen to your audience. And you're going to get complaints. I mean, if you mail once a week, there are going to be some people in your audience that are going to think it's too much.
0: Right? That's really good perspective. It doesn't matter and how much. It doesn't matter how much or little you send. Like you're going to get complaints.
1: That's right. But but there's a point at which you, you reach critical mass where you're getting complaints from longtime customers, and they're saying, "Look, I love your stuff. I've bought everything, but you're killing me. You know, dial it back." So I just subscribed to an email list uh, about two weeks ago. The guy was literally mailing twice a day, three twice and sometimes three times a day. And I just said, look, I love you, but I don't even see my kids three times a day. You know,
0: <laughs> so, so I don't want to hear sorry from about you. All the, I'm sorry about all those emails, Michael. I didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> that there, there were three coming to you every day. Uh, uh, I just think, you know, like there's one
1: guy that I never get tired of hearing from, and maybe this just is me, but it's Jeff Walker. Now, Jeff mails a lot. But he's so good with his copy that I almost always read him, and I've never been tempted to unsubscribe. But he's like the one exception that probably proves the rule. You know, unless you are a, you know, super ninja copywriter, just be very careful. And I, I think one of the things we've moved to in our business now is that we're sending out an email that has content that only appears in the newsletter, but it's content driven, not marketing driven. And we feel like if we're adding value, and I talk about this actually in my book platform, I called it the 20 to one rule, which is pretty funny in retrospect because what I said is you got to make 20 deposits before you can make a withdrawal. Well, wow. today I would probably say it's more like three to one. You know, if you can make three deposits before you make an ask, you know, that's probably a good ratio. But the point is you got to make more deposits than withdrawals. Otherwise, you know, you, you overdraw the account. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's okay.
0: Yeah. That's like the jab, 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 right? Exactly. right? I guess that's like three, three to one. But uh, so, so really it sounds like the rule is just kind of listen to your audience yep. and, and just sort of just respect the audience. Listen, you know, take their feedback. I mean, that's another good one. That wasn't on my list here to ask you, but just like, you know, writing your own copy versus having someone else write your copy. When do you make that transition? How do you do that? Like, I think as a
1: business owner, or as a brand builder, you've got to ask yourself, what's the best and highest use of you? And so at the very beginning, I did everything. You know, I wrote the sales pages, I edited the podcast, I posted it, you know, I created all the content for the courses, everything. But at some point I say, okay, what's the best and highest use of me? And in Free to Focus, I talk about this being your desire zone activities, the things where you're passionate, the things that you are particularly good at. So. I don't write any email copy. In fact, this may be shocking, but I don't even review it today. What we have done is we've trained a small group of writers to write in my voice, to kind of deconstruct how I speak. We literally have a written style guide on this. How I speak, things I would, that, that I typically say, things I would never say, you know, just kind of the, the elements of style with regard to my voice. And so, so, yeah, where I spend my time these days is I'm writing every morning, creating new content. That's the best and highest use of me. So for at least an hour a day, I'm writing 500 to 750 words a day. And that becomes sort of the pantry from which my team draws for all kinds of stuff, whether it's products or books or whatever. How much do you read? Less than I used to, but still a fair amount. I'll read probably two or three books a month. The reason I, I read less than I used to Is because I listen to so many podcasts today. And I find that, unfortunately, this is kind of the dirty little secret of publishing, is that so many books should have been an essay. And in order to give it enough bulk to be able to sell at retail, they fill it up with a lot of filler. Hmm. And so the thing I like about podcasts, not all podcasts, there's like some of the most popular podcasts make me crazy because they take forever to get to the point, they just talk and talk and talk and talk and they ramble and there's no takeaway. But having said that, I generally can get out of a podcast content that really rocks my world much faster than I than I can most books, and there's definitely some exceptions to that.
0: Okay, I know we're running up on our we're running up on our time here. I got one more question, but before I do that, where should people go if they're not yet following you, if they want to follow you, they want to catch up with Michael Hyatt, see how you're doing, what you're doing in like the new new era of the Michael Hyatt personal brand.
1: Yeah, well, you can find everything at michaelhyatt.com. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, you'll find all of our other brands. So there's everything from our store there, to the Full Focus Planner, to the Business Accelerator Program, Leader Books, which is our monthly book club for leaders. All this stuff has, has links there. And I would encourage people to listen to the podcast. That's still the thing that I think is the best effort that we make. And in terms of branding and in terms of reach, I I just think there's no return like what you get on a podcast. And our podcast, I do it with my oldest daughter, Megan Hyatt Miller, who's our COO of our company. And it's called Lead to Win. That's on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, but you can find links to it on michaelhyatt.com.
0: Okay. So last one for you, Michael, as you said, this is maybe going back to some of your earlier days and certainly as a publisher, you had to turn down a lot of authors. You turned down a lot of dreamers in recent years. It's been more like you've been coaching them and you've seen people trying to struggle and you know trying to kind of, you know, battle the fight. And then you comment to where today it's like, there's so much noise. There's, there's a lot of competition in webinars and podcasts and books and everything. I think that there's a part of this these days that is just dealing with heartbreak and just dealing with, you know, some of that setback. What would be your advice if there's somebody out there that is just feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't get a publisher. I can't get an agent. No one's listening to my podcast. No one's reading my articles. No one's on my emails. Like, what what would you say to that person?
1: Congratulations, you're normal. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you
1: know, I, I really think, and I think this is important for people to hear. I, I think that's in a way God's way of testing us to see if we're really committed to this thing that we mm-hmm. say we're committed to. So my first book was rejected by 29 publishers before the 30th one said yes. And I was ready to throw in the towel and my agent wouldn't let me. My book Living Forward, which is about four books back, was rejected by about the same number of publishers. I already had a New York Times bestseller. I already had, you know, a huge platform. And that book, nobody believed in it. Everybody rejected it. Now it's gone on to sell about almost 200,000 copies. But nobody wanted to touch it for reasons I still don't understand. And I get that that gets discouraging, you know, and, and I almost gave up there too. I thought, geez, you know, maybe there's a better use of my time. Maybe, you know, God, the universe, whatever, is trying to say something to me. This isn't the right timing or it's the wrong message. And I think it's one of the most important books I've ever written. I'm glad I persevered. In fact, if it hadn't been for Gail cheering me on, I think I would have given up. But I think that's normal. And I think, you know, there I, I have bad days every week where I want to quit, you know. And for some reason, I just keep chugging along and trying to believe, you know, the best of what's happening. But it's just normal. Rejection, you know, the the... The world doesn't owe me a living and the marketplace doesn't owe me anything. And so it's up to me to create enough value that people can see it and wanna participate in it. So I I think the, the best advice I've ever gotten, the thing that I try to practice when I get discouraged is forget about the platform, forget about trying to write a bestseller, forget about trying to be famous. How can I help my clients? What are their needs? How can I encourage them? How can I be useful to them? And if you do that consistently enough, I really think it'll come back.
0: Amen. There you have words of wisdom from one of the most experienced people in several different aspects and components of this space. Michael, thank you so much for making time for all of us and uh, for putting out as much amazing content as you do. Uh, I mean, you guys, your team's amazing, your family, we just, we love you, we believe in you, and again, oh, thanks. We're, we're, we're honored to know you. Thanks, Rory. I appreciate you and AJ too.